this was all circulating around the base that a giant had been killed, but no one was supposed to talk about it. I saw three long bony fingers reach up underneath the door, curl up to grab it, and then disappear. When he came over to me, dude, he slithered over to me. And this giant comes out of the cave, and they're all frozen. And he starts running and firing at this giant. But the giant moves. He's got a spear in one hand, and he's running really fast. And spears Dan and holds him up like this. Somebody yells, shoot him in the face, shoot him in the face. They basically decapitate him. Got closer, got closer, got closer. When he got about 15 yards away from me, I raised that 12 gauge, and I blowed his head off. I feel something pulling at my leg, and I look over, and there are two small gray entities pulling at me. And they're literally, I'm getting pulled off the bed. I reach my hand into this bush, and I touch air. Couldn't breathe, and I couldn't move, because I know I'm seeing a monster. Yep. Welcome to the show, everybody. You're listening to The Confessionals. I am your host, Tony Merkel. Thank you for being here. If you've had an encounter or a story you'd like to share with me on the show, go ahead and shoot me that email. My email address is theconfessionals at theconfessionalspodcast.com. That's theconfessionals at theconfessionalspodcast.com. Or go to the website, theconfessionalspodcast.com. Hit the contact section and you can reach me that way as well. Either way works for me, just get a hold of me. And if you want to hear more shows every week, go to theconfessionalspodcast.com. Hit the join button and become a member to the website today because we release an extra show every Thursday right there on the website for your listening pleasure. And 2020 has turned into a madhouse, and that's why we decided to start promoting preparewiththeconfessionals.com. That's preparewiththeconfessionals.com, where you can get emergency preparedness food right there. And we have great deals, and it's not just food, but also supplies in case things hit the fan and you need to make sure you can protect you and your family, go to preparewiththeconfessionals.com. And if you get a four-week supply of food, we will knock $100 off for you right there on the spot. Now, this week, we have Marcus coming on the show. And Marcus has a lot of insane paranormal tales to share from the UK. But before we get to Marcus, I want to share this audio from the YouTube channel, Really Graceful. And she really did a good job breaking down this quote-unquote conspiracy theory around President Trump time traveling with the stories that were written back in the 1800s about a future president that was going to be the last president. In fact, one of the books is called The Last President. And I'm going to play this audio for you to kind of set the mood for today because we got election day today and everybody's going crazy. The whole world is up in arms. And I thought it'd be fun to kind of revisit this idea that President Trump is actually a time traveler who went back in time, had these books written somehow, and now he is the president of the United States running for a second term and here we are in the midst of the chaos so let's get to really graceful's youtube channel video called is trump the last president
Okay, internet friends, today we're talking about some books written long ago. Seemingly able to predict future events as though Nostradamus himself wrote them, but they were so boring no one really read them until recently. Before I proceed, should I apologize and make excuses for myself now or later? I'm envisioning Snopes writers spitting at their computer screens and I'm already anticipating some of the comments a few of you are typing out. Grace, I can't believe you would perpetuate the right-left paradigm. Don't you know that politics is just theater? Well, don't mind me. I'm just over here in all my diet woke glory. Going back to my roots of literary analysis. Because it's been two years since I uploaded my video on the marvelous adventures of Baron Trump. Exploring the possibilities of time travel and psychological operation potential. And I've since been pondering Ingersoll Lockwood's other works, namely his short piece entitled The Last President, detailing the trials of the last president of the United States, the destruction of the Republic, and its parallels to President Trump. Hold on to your butts, internet friends, because today we're traveling through past, present, and future to answer my pressing questions. What is destiny, and can it be manifested? First, let's talk about the author of these books. Ingersoll Lockwood was an American lawyer and writer based in New York. His father was a military man and close friend of Henry Clay, a U.S. representative, senator, speaker of the House, and secretary of state, who helped found the National Republican Party and Whig Party. Henry Clay's nickname was the Great Compromiser, the master of the art of the deal for his time. Apparently, Ingersoll Lockwood was a big fan of Clay, too, because he wrote a poem for Clay adorning him with the Lockwood last name and referring to him as a brother. Both Clay and Ingersoll Lockwood are on record as Freemasons, which I only bring up in connection to the occult elements throughout their lives and works. Ingersoll Lockwood's friends weren't the only ones who were politically connected, as he was appointed consul to the Kingdom of Hanover, the fourth largest state in the German Confederation, by none other than President Abraham Lincoln. What did Lockwood get up to in his free time when he wasn't practicing law or acting as consul or writing children's books? Well, he created a club called the Union of the Titans, with exclusive membership of men taller than six foot two. According to his obituary printed in the New York Times in October of 1918, he died at the age of 77 in Saratoga Springs, New York. Ingersoll Lockwood's children's books about a character commonly called Little Baron Trump his dog Bulger and their marvelous underground ventures detail the adventures of a wealthy boy living in Castle Trump. And his journey consists of traveling to Russia, depicting a world within a world which the young Baron explores with his dog Bulger, using a guidebook provided by the master of all masters named Don. Not even Baron's parents know where Baron was born, but he's constantly bringing up how big his brain is and manages to come up with a personalized insult for most folks he meets and his adventures take him underground, underneath the Ural Mountains in Russia, much in the style of Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. All the evidence needed to make a Russian collusion case can be found within the text of a book written over 100 years ago. Jokes, I got jokes. While his children's books were written in the early 1890s, Ingersoll Lockwood's later works include The Laconics of a Cult, a critique of organized religion and what he describes as shadowy gods on their shadowy thrones. At the end of this critique, Lockwood attempts to create a new cult called the Cult of the Immortal Human. 
pictured at the beginning of the book are two photographs of Lockwood at age 30 and at age 60. Why are there two photographs? I guess the author wants you to notice how little he's aged in 30 years. November 3rd, 1896 was the 28th U.S. presidential election, in which former Governor William McKinley defeated Democrat William Jennings Bryan. Keep in mind, this was post-Civil War and pre-World War America. McKinley won, promoting the dollar being backed by the gold standard and encouraging industrial growth, while William Jennings Bryan lost as the pro-silver economic reformer. Lockwood's piece of political fiction about this election is dubbed a novel, but The Last President reads more like a play. One of 10 acts or chapters that follows a different timeline of the 1896 election, one in which a character named Brian wins the presidency. The first scene is set in New York, where mobs are breaking out in New York City and states that the Fifth Avenue Hotel will be the first to feel the full fury of the mob. Within the first act, a clear division is defined, one between those who support the new president and those who do not. Sound familiar? It's curious because 666 Fifth Avenue was built for the Vanderbilt family and was owned by President Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. And Trump Tower is located on Fifth Avenue, but the parallels don't end there. It takes a few chapters to establish that Brian is beloved by the common people, considered a savior and a god to many. Brian has succeeded in connecting with the everyman. In chapter three, it says that the people made him president in the very face of the prodigious opposition of the rich men, whose coffers had been of the satanic and truly devilish power of that hell upon earth known as Wall Street. So it doesn't take long to communicate to the reader that the valley between the rich and the poor was ever widening during this time. And the blame for the economic depression was placed upon Wall Street, which is given satanic characteristics. Probably because usury is considered a sin. And they say that the root of all evil is the love of money. There's talk of a dawnless day, and eventually, Brian selects members of his cabinet. One of the members is a character named Pence. An executive order is passed abandoning the gold standard, Wall Street is shocked, and the brunt of it is felt by the common folk who are living in the streets of Washington, D.C. without food, waiting for rations and to be placed into camps. In a relatively short period of time, the dollar declines and the government is powerless to stop it. Taxes rise and chaos capitalizes on this void. Separatist movements pop up with socialism and anarchy finding willing ears. Once again, the South unites against the North as the South, which represents the common people, is upset about the taxes being placed upon them, especially when they view the North as the much wealthier territory. Prophecy details more revolution, more tensions between the North and the South. The play ends with a weakened and demoralized president being encouraged to resign by the Speaker of the House. But the president makes one last good show for the common folk, captivating everyone under his spell for one last time. Then, suddenly, the Capitol is struck by dynamite, and with it, the Republic falls. The whole thing ends really creepily, with the author describing a single human eye with a devilish joy admiring the rubble of the fallen Republic. Like a scene straight out of the fires of Mordor or the pages of a Lovecraftian horror, neither of which had yet been written. Ingersoll Lockwood's books resurfaced into public consciousness in 2017. 
When the internet popularized the novels by drawing parallels between them and the current political situation in the United States. From wealthy little Baron Trump living in Castle Trump, being guided by the master of all masters, Don, through various adventures in an underground Russian fantasy land, to the last president in Lockwood's novel presenting similarities to President Trump as a political outsider and champion of the common people. The familiar name Pence popping up within the president's own cabinet, as well as the divisive nature of the election and the location of the novel's mob activity in proximity to Trump properties. All of these are sprinkled across Lockwood's various works. And if we step back and look at his works as a collection, there are some strange synchronicities for sure. But in 2017, the discourse surrounding these books generally revolved around the weird similarities, but not the implications. Certainly, mainstream media helped shape the discussion by publishing an endless array of articles aimed to debunk the connection between Lockwood and Trump, writing it off as nothing more than tinfoil hattery. These articles addressed the question of whether or not Donald Trump had or has access to a time machine, routinely bringing up Trump's uncle and his examination of inventor Nikola Tesla's laboratory. In the aftermath of Tesla's death, the FBI reportedly confiscated his papers, and they were reviewed by none other than John Trump, a physicist who worked for the United States government's Office of Scientific Research and Development. Was Donald Trump privy to the contents of Tesla's office? Back in 2017, Snopes managed to take enough time away from soliciting prostitutes to write their take on the Trump-Lockwood connection. They said, although these books contain seemingly bizarre coincidences, they are no evidence that Donald Trump has a time machine. Thank you for that, Snopes. Two years after Lockwood reached peak popularity, a writer who specializes in researching and debunking conspiracy theories and fringe beliefs by the name Mike Rothschild put together a frustrated piece expressing great displeasure about how this stupid Lockwood conspiracy theory wouldn't go away because, I quote, conspiracy theorists tend to never move on. They only add more details. I'm sure Mr. Rothschild knows this since he's a self-proclaimed expert on debunking these disgusting, predatory conspiracy theories that these mouth-breathing, low-IQ, useless eaters have the nerve to discuss freely online. But just a reminder that a conspiracy is, by definition, an evil, unlawful, treacherous, or surreptitious plan formulated in secret by two or more persons. Basically, a conspiracy is unlawful plotting between two or more folks. And a conspiracy theory is just filling in the blanks of the who, what, when, where, and why behind this unlawful plotting. Furthermore, I didn't realize that time travel or time machine ownership were unlawful acts. In order for them to be declared unlawful, there would have to be some kind of acknowledgement or declaration that time travel existed beyond the pages of your favorite science fiction novel. But hey, we all know that the best way to make people forget about something and keep them from discussing ideas is to repeatedly publish and perpetuate those ideas through various mainstream media outlets, framing the appropriate conversation along the way. Makes you wonder. When I made my original video about the marvelous adventures of Baron Trump, I knew nothing of memetics and even less of trickery. 
or the sleight of hand. While this whole story seemed to have peaked in 2017, there's never been a time more relevant to bring it up than right now when the House of Representatives has impeached President Trump. As of this week, his Senate trial is currently underway. And for a while there, every time I turned on talk radio, radio hosts perpetuated the theory that this whole impeachment trial would actually lead to the possibility of Trump running for a third term. A strange loophole of sorts, one might say. This idea seemed to have originated online by former Republican governor and father to former White House press secretary. But once again, the mainstream media moved quickly to debunk this claim, stating that the 22nd Amendment to the Constitution expressly prohibits a person from being elected to the office of president more than twice. Since Trump was already elected once, he is only eligible for one more term. Regardless, a third term for any American president seems like a recipe to dissolve the federal republic and constitutional representative democracy we supposedly have here in the United States. I realize our mileage might vary in connecting the past to the present. To use something as seemingly innocuous as an American lawyer's works of historical fiction and children's fantasy to analyze the reality in which we live. Maybe John Trump really did build a time machine off of Tesla's notes. Maybe Lockwood's family had some sort of looking glass family heirloom, and he wrote a collection of particularly hard-to-read works in an attempt to shift humanity from the path of destruction. Or maybe, just maybe, what's playing out before us is all a big theater performance, a most brilliant one, more of a comedy than a tragedy. To convince the masses that they have some sort of semblance of control over the thing we call government. As we continue to vote for people we'll never meet, in order for those elected individuals to turn around, line their pockets with lobby dollars, and tell us how to run our lives. For me, it's difficult to say whether the last president in Lockwood's book was a character genuinely concerned for the well-being of the everyman and champion of the common people or if he was in on the plot to destroy the Republic. But it doesn't really matter either way, does it? The outcome of his presidency was predetermined. A script written, the characters cast, the play executed, and destiny fulfilled. What do you think, internet friends? Are the parallels between Lockwood's collection of works and the current political state of the U.S. nothing more than coincidence? Is this a case of happenstance, merely an oddity, rather than the script revealing itself? And if Lockwood's last president was indeed a warning, can destiny be stopped? Okay, today we got Marcus on the show from the UK. Marcus from the UK, how are you doing, man? Hey, pretty good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great, man. So, uh, you know, I I don't get a ton of people coming on the show from the UK. I know I got a lot of listeners in the UK, but not a whole lot of them reach out and stuff. So this is a, a call to all my UK listeners. If you have a story you want to share and stuff, go ahead and contact me like uh, Marcus did, because we'll definitely bring you on the show to share your experiences as well. Uh, Marcus, you have uh, a ton of experiences throughout your life, and it starts in your childhood, right? That's right, Yeah. Um, it starts in my childhood and it goes all through my teenage years and for some strange reason it ends in my like mid-twenties. Um, 
but yeah, some some mind bending things, some things that I, I can't explain to this day. So yeah, yeah. So uh, let's just get it going right now then with your childhood and uh, start walking us into these first experiences that you had and how that progresses throughout your life. Because uh, I do find it interesting that these experiences seem to have stopped at some point. And I'm curious as to maybe hearing about how these things unfold, and maybe that will show some detail as to why they stopped. I'm not sure, but let's hear it out. Yeah, so um, basically, I grew up on a farm in the uh, north of England, in a place called Lancashire, which is a county, um, not too far away from Manchester. A lot of people might know Manchester, Manchester United, the football team. So this farm that we lived on was in the middle of nowhere. It was a, a huge old 16th century stone farmhouse with a lot of land around it, no streetlights for miles, and our nearest neighbour was probably about uh, you know, four miles away. And so, you know, it could be a pretty creepy place as it is on its own. But um, I first started, odd things first started happening when I think when I was a toddler, um, for some reason, I was always afraid to sleep in my bedroom. Um, my mother and father would have sleepless nights because I just refused to sleep in my room. And yeah, it was very odd. I had lots of different incidents, names being called out when no one was in the house. Um, I could hear like my name being shouted from downstairs, ran downstairs, no one was around. No one was in the kitchen. I could see out of the window, and my mother and father were across in the field opposite. So that that was the first experience I had where I was questioning questioning the nature of reality, if you will, at a very young age. And then the next experience I could remember, it, it all revolved around the bedroom that I was sleeping in when I think back about the incident, and. I think I was probably about five years old and all of a sudden I was woken up in the middle of the night with a huge bang and I had three shelves on the wall, on the head, the wall where my head was, um, there was three shelves above me and it had all my board games on and toys from when I was a kid and every single board game literally flew off the shelf and buried me in the bed. And my mother came racing in, screaming to my dad, like, what's going on? What's going on? And I remember, like, pulling myself from under all these board games, thinking, wow, what just happened? And it's very odd because I, I remember being moved out of that bedroom into a spare room. And I just didn't think anything of it at that age because, you know, you, you don't know how to question things like that. You don't know. Uh, it was strange. I wouldn't go back into my own bedroom, even to play with my toys. And at the time, it just seemed so normal. But looking back, with hindsight, it seems really strange. And my bedroom would always feel ice cold compared to the other room that I'd stop in often. And I was, oh, whenever I did go back into that bedroom, I'd find myself in the middle of the night in the same bed as my mother and father, uh, much to my father's annoyance. He would uh, end up sleeping in my room and eventually I'd give him sleepless nights. 
but there's something that just made me petrified about this bedroom. And eventually, you know, I grew a bit older. I was like 10 years old. And on an unrelated topic to the, like the haunting style things that was going on, um, my mother called to me that there was um, strange lights outside the window. So our living room at the back of the farm overlooked miles of meadowland and there was a valley looking down. And so we, we had what was called a telegraph pole, which is like uh, the telegraph pole fed the farm line to the house. And using that as a visual marker, you could see a huge circular light in the sky. And it was almost like a Simon Says with the different colours in each corner. So you had the red, yellow, green, blue. And my mother shouted to my My dad was actually out that evening. Um, my mum shouted, hey, come and have a look at this. This is really strange. It doesn't look like a, a star. So I had a look. And this weird light with different colours all twinkling was moving in a square formation. Um, and you could see where this telegraph pole was. It would move down, across, to the right, up, to the left, down, in a square formation over and over and over. And it just kept going for about half an hour. And my father eventually returned and my mother called him over and said, you know, this, this is really strange. It, it doesn't look like anything, like a star. You know, it's not the pole star. It's not Venus. It looks too close. And, um, yeah, th that, that was like my first UFO encounter. And then after that, I'd have really strange recurring dreams um, in, in that bedroom especially. I, I have recurring dreams like, at the front of the house, we had a huge yard that led up to a, a big stone barn. And I'd have these dreams that there were a gathering of children all holding hands. And there was there were these kind of guardians overlooking us and teaching us and teaching us to sing things and, and to learn things. And this dream happened over and over. And the strange thing was, whenever I awoke from one of these dreams, I was so restless that I'd be out of my bed on the floor with the covers absolutely tangled around me, uh, which really freaked me out. And the, these dreams carried on for quite a few years. Um, and then after that, we, my mum got ill. Unfortunately, she got cancer. So we had to move to my grandparents' house which was uh, in a neighbouring city. But it was a very old house, uh, funny enough. It was a stable that had been converted into a house. So it was actually all the old stables had been totally converted into a... The front of the house was a cottage and the back of the house was old stables, but they'd converted it all into a property and joined it all. And there was some tales originally when the workers there that there was some strange happenings and some banging and people could hear voices, but nobody really thought of anything of it. Um, but I was stopping there, and I, I was stopping in the same room as my grandfather. Um, there was two single beds. So I was in a single bed, 
My grandfather was in a single bed. My grandmother mother was sleeping in a double bed with my mother in a, another room. And I, I was fast asleep. It must have been about two in the morning, and I got violently awoken with what felt like somebody literally pulling my face out of the bed. And it was so shocking and visceral. I opened my eyes and I, th I thought it must have been somebody trying to warn me of something. You know, could it have been a fire or an emergency or something? But when I opened my eyes, all I could see was a hazy blur in front of me. And this panicked me even more so. And so I started pulling away and it was almost like suction pulling me out of the side of the bed. And I had to pull with all my might to get free of it. And when I did, my adrenaline kicked in so hard, I just ran out of the room, down the stairs, breathing heavily and just sat there. I didn't know what to do. I just, it took me about half an hour to process what happened. So I ran back up the stairs in this small little cottage, peeked tentatively around the door to see nothing there. My grandfather's fast asleep. For some reason, I didn't wake him up. I don't know why. You know, a lot of people would have just freaked out and woken up anybody near them and said what happened. For some reason, I kept it to myself, and I just stopped up all night downstairs in an armchair and just thought about it and tried to come to terms with what on earth it was. Um, that was the experience that. And then after that, we um, uh, um, unfortunately, my mum didn't make the battle with the cancer, so she died when I was really young, I think, like 13, 14. And my dad was a, a truck driver, just like yourself, and he was away quite a few nights. He was delivering pet food around the country. I'd had a girlfriend at that time. I think this was, I must have been about, what, 18 and my dad had moved us to this small town in the middle of nowhere. I'd lost touch with all my friends. Um, I was quite unhappy for obvious reasons because, you know, the, the depression of kind of losing your mother at such an early age. I'd built myself a whole group of friends. I used to skateboard. and I had this big circle of friends. And then to be moved away from all that into this town that um, was quite inhospitable, a really small, what they call terraced house, which just seemed very odd from the outset. As soon as we moved in there, I was very unhappy, but I didn't know why. I just I never felt such unease. And I'd met my, my wife, who I've been married to for a long time. I met her at college. Um, we both met at art college. And I'd started dating her at the time. And so my dad would be away maybe Tuesdays, Wednesdays, every week. So my um, girlfriend would come around at that time and we'd just hang out and watch telly. Her friends would come around as well. Um, we'd watch, you know, a few shows back then. And then just, just hanging out really like usual and then what the strange thing was, was 
every time that she would go and get a, call a cab to go home, there was a strange sulfur smell started to appear throughout the whole house. And I said to her, she was just waiting for a cab, and I said, do you smell that? And she said, yeah, it's like somebody's just struck a match, but it, it's everywhere. And that carried on for maybe a few weeks, always the same night, never when my father was in, um, like clockwork. And then things started to get worse. So, for instance, again, my girlfriend would come round, and by the time, like, say, 11 o'clock, she was getting a cab home, the sulfur smell would appear, but then a mist, a haze would, would start to fill the um, the room like the we had two rooms on the ground floor there was like what we call the front room which led out to the street and then we had a back room which was more like a lounge and a kitchen and you could see this mist almost and a hazy mist gathering from the back room and almost coming forward into the front room and I just thought it was my imagination and she was going out of the door into the cab at that time. And this thing was like clockwork. It was almost as if it was waiting for people to be out the house. And then gradually over the weeks, all hell would break loose. It went from just the sulfur smell to the haze through to um, noises that I could hear. So I, I would literally be in bed watching a small portable TV back then. And I could hear banging downstairs like, what seemed like in the kitchen, cutlery in the drawer would almost seem like it was being rattled. So I would run downstairs to have to check things out to see. No, nothing. Couldn't see anything. No one there. Drawer was exactly how it should be. So this started to really unnerve me. And I ran back in the bedroom. Um, it made me want to barricade myself in my room it got that bad so I had this huge board that I used to use as a like a drawing board like a huge piece of wood and I lodged that up against my uh, door handle because things had started freaking me out that much and I would sit bolt upright in my bed afraid to go to sleep then strange things started happening like the tv the signal would go off intermittently static would be on screen for two minutes and then the picture would come back on and again you could hear the, the rattling and the banging downstairs and this was like on a reg regular schedule like clockwork every time my father would be away in his long distance lorry driving this would happen as soon as I was in the house on my own and eventually um, there was an episode where it's almost like this Whatever it was, whether it, call it an entity or a, a poltergeist or whatever, who knows, but it's almost like it was getting more daring and it, it wasn't waiting until I was on my own. My girlfriend was there one Wednesday and we were both sat downstairs at about 10 in the evening and we both heard this huge bang. It was like the house shock and we both interpreted it in totally different ways. I ran into the kitchen she ran upstairs to the bathroom and then she didn't notice anything but I, I kind of went upstairs and then she ran downstairs having a look around because we thought maybe somebody had broken the house 
And then I went into the bathroom and I noticed something really strange. Um, we had the usual small bathroom. It was a configuration of a toilet, uh, a small bathtub with a window. And the toilet, on the top of the toilet, where the flushing mechanism was, there was a small bowl of potpourri, you know, the stuff that's like um, makes the house smell nice. It's all the dried kind of petals or whatever. Now, this bowl had been flipped almost, and it was in the bathtub, which was about two foot away. And the whole room was filled full of this debris of all this potpourri. But this potpourri had actually gone on the shelf of both the toilet as well, which really freaked me out because, you know, it was kind of defying the laws of physics. It was like if somebody had knocked that over, then surely it would have just dropped onto the floor. How on earth the actual dish had gone from the top of the toilet into the bathtub and then the petals or dried whatever, flowers or whatever they were, how that ended up on a shelf like a foot higher just baffled me. And these things, these just kept carrying on, all these um, weird kind of incidents all the time. And it's almost like this thing was following me around because then I started to um, have strange occurrences at friends' houses, whether it be local friends that I had or friends even in total different counties or towns. Um, it's like something had attached to me or was following me around. And it wasn't until years later that I pieced all these things together and tried to make sense of it. Because at the time, the, a lot of these incidents were so far apart that you didn't put them together in any kind of catalogue and try and make sense of it. I always kind of sensed that I must have been very sensitive to paranormal things and I must have been, something must have um you know, attached me almost or made me able to see things or experience things that others couldn't. And the the next kind of event that happened that was incredibly strange, it just gets stranger as it goes along. Um, it's I had a friend, uh, a best friend at that time. Uh, we met through skateboarding and we both went to art college and he lived about a couple of miles away up the road and I was visiting him and his, he lived with his father and his stepmother and it was an incredibly old cottage. It was like a Tudor cottage from like 1600s or something like that. And his father was renovating the property at the time. And so half of the rooms were in disrepair, a lot of scaffolding around the outside of the house. Um, some rooms were just wood boards. Others were, you know, good to live in. And the walls were kind of a stone, not not cement or wallpaper, but the original stone from that era. And we, we were in his bedroom, and there was a stone alcove like, dug into the wall, if you will. And he was showing me, he was at the end of his year in college and he had a final almost like um, exam to do if you will where he had to submit some pieces of artwork and he was getting my opinion on them 
And so he put this painting up on the wall, like this canvas, and he rested it on the wall. And at that time, I used to smoke. And I had a pack of Marlboros, so I took a, a Marlboro out, passed him one. And at that time, he said, oh, will you just check this piece of artwork I've done up uh, and tell me whether you think it's um, worthy of submitting to this final review for the end of the year. So I hadn't even lit the cigarette at that point. I walked over to this star shelf, placed the cigarette down on the shelf, and it was kind of hanging half off, half on the shelf, um, but sturdy enough on that. So I walked over to, um, to where my friend was stood, and we started critiquing this painting, you know, and all of a sudden we both heard this huge sound that just sounded like this. And it was, but at the same time, it was so striking, so startling. The window kind of came open, the latch on the window opened, and the window came open at the same time, which really made us jump out of the skin. And then this noise followed by a sulfur smell instantly, made us turn our heads straight away. And as soon as we turned our heads to the shelf, the cigarette looked like somebody had flicked it with their um, index finger and the thumb, like you traditionally do a flick. And it spun about three foot above the shelf, spinning into the air. And this was the freaky thing. In the air, it lit and then landed on the floor. So when it when it it wasn't lit before it went in the air, but as it was no. in the air, it lit exactly. And there wasn't any flame or anything nearby. Nothing. Very and, interesting. Oh, it, it was so freaky that me, me and my friend, we just primal instincts kicked in, and we ran out of the room, downstairs, through the living room, through the kitchen, out the back door, round the front of the property across the other side of the street and we're just staring up at his bedroom window in shock and we were looking at each other and we were saying to each other did that just happen and he was like yeah the cigarette just flicked and lit itself up and I said yeah that's what I saw and we spent 10 minutes trying to rationalise it to each other um, before tentatively going back up into that room to try and analyse it like a crime scene. And we couldn't accept the reality of that because it just seemed too far out. How could ever that happen? It just is impossible. So we were trying to rationalise it with events that might have caused it. You know, like, oh, could it have been um, a gas leak, a spark? Could uh, there have been a lightning strike and that blown the window open? Um, just any kind of rational thing. Could a lighter nearby have exploded and we didn't notice? Um, all these kind of things, but there was no lighter nearby. So this, it, you know, it was one of these incidents where it was really freaky, but like your brain just ended up rationalising it into, and storing it away. And then other things started to happen in that property, which... Um, put perspective to the cigarette incident almost. And the first thing that happened was 
it was confirmation from his stepmother that not herself. So it made us think that something was going on in that house. She was an artist too, and she would do a lot of painting, a lot of oil painting. And in one of these rooms that was still being renovated, she had a lot of canvases on easels, and she had a lot of blank canvases on the floor, and she just nipped out to go and make a cup of coffee downstairs. And all her canvases were neatly stacked up, you know, on the floor against a wall. But she came back in the room, and a lot of these canvases were lodged in a drawer of um, this cabinet. Like if you imagine a long horizontal drawer, and you imagine that the drawer had been opened, and canvases had been vertically lodged by the corners and jammed in the drawer so that they were stuck upright. And this really freaks her out. And um, she hadn't told us this until my friend had started talking about some of the experiences that he had and I had, and also some of her other friends had had while visiting the property. Um, one of her other friends had visited, and he was in the bathroom uh, brushing his teeth, and something startled him and came past the window. It looked like a, a figure hurtling down like almost falling vertically past the window. And the only thing that he could possibly describe it as was like a shadowy figure looked like it was hanging itself. Uh, and he just double-takes and it really freaked him out. He came running out and told my friend at that time. And um, all these stories started to come out about this prophecy. And then... Other nights, I, I was stopping there overnight. I used to stop there. Um, we used to watch like animes or play video games. And I must have been about 20, 22 or something at that point. And then in the middle of the night, my phone was always really restless. He, he was a, a, an insomniac. And often I'd find myself awakening in the night to find that he wasn't around. He was out of his bed. He was downstairs watching TV because he couldn't sleep. So that was that was normal. Well, this night, I was awakened by breath on my ear and a voice whispering, and it said, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I quickly turned around, thinking it was my friend. And I said, what, what, you know, what do you want? And I turned around and there was nobody there. And this really startled me. And so the first thought was, has he quickly just walked out of the room? Is he playing a prank on me? So I ran downstairs, and it, the stairs were big enough for him not to have got enough lead to go. I would have heard him running down the stairs if that was the case. Went downstairs, he was absolutely fast asleep on the chair. Uh, went back upstairs and was afraid to go back to sleep that night because it was just so weird. And the physical sensation of breath in your ear. And just this foreboding, you know, what are you doing kind of voice. It just really freaked me out. And it was then I started to think, is it, am I attracting all this? Or, you know, is it just that are all these houses that were in just so old and just so rich, full of history? And I started to question at that point. And then we had some more conversation, uh, confirmation from his uh old cottage that we were renovating. Uh, I think it was his father had 
gone out of the main bedroom where they slept, him and uh, my friend's stepmother. And they'd come back into the bedroom and all the books and CDs were stacked up in the middle of the room in a, in a huge vertical pile. And so it was very evident at that point that, you know, it was like poltergeist activity. And so there must have been some event or incident maybe in the past that caused this place to be very haunted indeed. You know, maybe with my friend seeing this person, or I, he hung himself. Maybe there was a troubled spirit there and who knows. And yeah, so that, that was the kind of, um, that brings to a close my friend's haunted historic cottage, if you will. Um, I have like another story that about that same time, I was working at a local newspaper as a, a designer, like designing newspaper ads. This was before the web. It was like 1996. And a few of us decided to organize a social event. Uh, and one guy suggested, oh, let's, um, I hear there's this place nearby called Chingle Hall. It's a really old property that's meant to be one of the most haunted places in England. And so uh, they're allowing visitors, he said, to do sleepovers in like groups of 12. And there's a guide there. The people that live there, they kind of keep out of the way. They lock themselves in the living room. And this old, they let you kind of roam around this old property and just experience all the strange goings on. So we said, yeah, let's let's organise that. And so we all arrived. It was a, a winter's evening. It was dark. And I imagined some big kind of stately mansion, but it wasn't anything like that. It was a small, tiny, white building. But it, it was very, very old. It was built in the year 2060. And it had such rich history. Um through the time when the Catholic Church was being persecuted by um, Queen Elizabeth, I think the first, if I've got that right, um, because the Catholics were trying to plot against the crown, and so they were trying to hunt down Catholics. This property had um, priest holes, as they called them, to hide priests away so that they didn't get arrested and persecuted and much worse, you know. And... This house had been untouched in a lot of ways and left in its original glory, if you will. There was like a little small altar in a room, all stone slab floors everywhere. You could see all these priest holes in the fireplaces. Um, it was quite a small place. There was, I'd say, like three or four rooms downstairs on the ground level and upstairs there was another maybe three, four rooms, all wooden floors with beams, very old. And there was almost like a, a moat around this property with a, an old bridge that crossed this moat. So we arrived and they sat us down and they started telling us stories about other people that had visited there. And they started showing us all these strange photographs on the wall that had been um, developed of the property had an unusually big amount of orb sightings around. Pretty much every guest who ever took a photo 
of anybody outside or any of the scenery or landscape, could see orbs, all different shapes, sizes, colours. So there was this whole wall that was dedicated to these orb photographs, um, which was strange in itself because you you know you, you expect to go to a place like that and for it to be oh it's a bit spooky and people tell stories, but it turned out that you know things were a lot more physical than just getting some kind of scares from stories, you know, things, visual evidence. And then our guide at that time, he sat us all down and he said, um, there was an incident here a few weeks ago that to this day nobody can figure out. It just freaked everybody out. There was a group of um, young girls visiting on a similar kind of overnight event. And the girls, it got to like 5.30 in the morning. There was a few strange activities, like people could hear things and people had heard strange sounds, but nothing to prepare people for what was going to happen. 5.28 a.m. in the morning, people were getting sleepy. People are around the kitchen table and they're all kind of um, getting sleepy and falling forwards and some of them were fast asleep, some of them were trying to stay awake. All of a sudden, they were rudely awakened by a horrific blood-curdling scream that seemed to come from everywhere everywhere around the house. Luckily, they had cassette recorder at that time recording this. And this scream just sounded like... They, they played us back the scream and you could hear it. So it was just silence and then this scream reverberated around the house, echoing everywhere, and it sounded like multiple layers over the top of each other. Do you still Just, have that? Do you still have the recording? Funnily enough, it's available on YouTube. If you search Jingle Hall, so that's C-H-I-N-G-L-E-H-A-L-L, Jingle Hall, um, and you search screen with that search phrase, it, it actually comes up. Somebody's posted it. Um, they sent this. Can I play yeah. it real quick? Sure, yeah, that'd be awesome. All right, give me one second here. Was that the scream? Yeah. That is chilling. Yep, it's blood curdling. That is chilling. Let's hear that again. What you hear in there is, in fact, um, are you hearing a few of the um, guests speaking and then the scream kind of kicks in and then it makes other people scream because of the sheer shock of it towards the end. And they sent it away yeah. to be analyzed by audio analysts and they couldn't make any sense out of it. Apparently it just didn't. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I heard the scream in the beginning and then I could tell that there was other people screaming in the background then too. And I would have as well, but you could definitely hear that scream come in and that is chilling. Absolutely chilling. Yeah, and this um, that was just one of the things that set us up to be terrified for the night while staying there. And um, we had one of the guide was saying they had a, another guide that just walked out, never came back, never said a word to anybody. They had a lot of UFO sightings apparently, and 
one night, this guide who used to sleep in one of the uh, rooms after one of these um, tours, if you will, he was awakened in the middle of the night and he swears that he looked over to the doorway and there was a cat-like humanoid entity in the room with its arms in front of its face. And if you can imagine its arms kind of moving up and down, like almost like windscreen wipers, like in a cartoon-like fashion, he said, like just looking so unreal, like really fast, like faster than a human could. And he just bolted out of this room and never came back, never showed up for work ever again. And um, I just thought that was such a, a strange story, not the traditional kind of story that a guide would tell you to scare people, but just, yeah. you know, a very odd story. So, you know, flash forward to our night, and then we got to something like five in the morning, and nothing happened with regards to sounds or experiences, but five in the morning again, everybody was asleep apart from me. And I could hear what sounded like stone slabs moving around on their own, like stone being dragged upon stone in what they called the priest room, where there was this little altar and this fireplace. And so I ran into this little room, couldn't see anything. I would run back to the this dining table where we were all sat. I'd sit there again and then I could hear, as soon as I came back to that place, the stone slab kind of movement grinding would start again. And then I could hear banging again in what was the kitchen area and cutlery and smashing around. And so I was waking people up saying, did you hear that? And then it just stopped. And after that, nothing really else happened after that, but just such a strange event nevertheless. But my um, my girlfriend at that time, who's now my wife, she had a best friend that also visited the property and she appeared on a, an English TV show recounting her experience. Um, I can't remember the name of the TV shows by a, a guy called Michael Aspel and it was something like Unsolved Mysteries or something to that effect. And she recounted when her and her friends were there for some kind of charity event, sleepover thing. And they were all holding hands trying to communicate with, you know, something or in a seance-like fashion. And she had a hand push her in the shoulder, like, really hard and knock her. And she turned around and nothing was there. And so she appeared on this TV show with that. And so it's, yeah, very interesting uh, property. I urge anyone to go and uh, look it up online. I don't know whether they're still accepting um, public visits, Probably not, because it was such a long time ago. Um, but it just shows how all these really ancient properties... The other story, by the way, going back to that, is they told us that it was on multiple ley lines, which anyone doesn't know what ley lines are. They're the big magnetic lines that um, run around the world. And you know, the story goes that if these magnetic lines cross, then you can have paranormal experiences or UFO sightings are quite common or crop circles. So this was on a spot that actually crossed quite a few ley lines. Um, so, yeah. Um, Fast-forwarding on to other experiences that I had. Um, I moved out of my dad's house because, to be quite honest, those experiences were getting so much in that bedroom where I couldn't sleep. I was having 
sleepless night week after week, only when he was away. And I just wanted to move out. And so my girlfriend, her parents had moved out of their um, property. They'd bought a new property and they rented out their property to us. And so it was great. You know, I had my freedom and we were setting up home together. And then strange things started happening there. It's like it followed me. And the first strange thing that happened was we were sat in the, um, the lounge area watching TV. And my wife said to me, I just saw somebody in the reflection in our room. They, they weren't outside. I could see somebody reflected behind me in the room. Uh, maybe I'm just seeing things. And so I just didn't, I brushed it off as just, yeah, you know, nothing. A week later, we were both climbing up the stairs to go to bed, and we, the smell of rotten meat um, permeated through the whole stair, like the hallways leading up to the stairs, all the way up the stairs into the bedroom. And it, it started as rotten meat, and then it turned into sulfur, and then it just disappeared, which was really odd. And a couple of months went by, nothing, nothing going on. And at that point, I'd started getting into music production. And we'd moved our bedroom into a small bedroom so that I could convert the main front bedroom into a music studio of sorts. And at that time, I was collecting all the old Star Wars figures that I used to have, have when I was a kid again. I was like going around, you know, flea markets and going buying them all and trying to build out the collection and I built these shelves onto the wall and I'd got quite a collection of these Star Wars figures again and some of the vehicles so they were all stood up on these shelves you know all lined up as you, as you can imagine and I was sat down in the middle of the room playing on a keyboard looking at this computer and then I felt this presence, somebody, somebody was watching me. I just had this feeling, like really eerily odd feeling. And it made me turn around really quickly. And as soon as I turned around, one by one, Star Wars figure looked like it had been flicked off the shelf one at a time. One figure, pop, spun around into the middle of the room quite far. Pop, flick, another figure, spinning around into the middle of the room. One by one, up to the total of like 10 different Star Wars figures that had been flicked into the middle of the room. Again, my rational kind of brain kicked in and started to think, okay, okay, I have a small fan heater. Is, did that come on by accident or something? Blow them off? No, that didn't come on. You know, I'm trying to rationalise it in any kind of way possible. And this feeling carried on for quite a few weeks of this being watched around the house when I was on my own. And then years later, we got talking to my mother-in-law, my wife's mother, who um, I started telling her um, how these experiences happen when we were living in that same house. And she teared up and she said, oh, I had lots of experiences there. And I think it was my deceased mother. And because I, I smelt similar things to you over the years, like the, odd smells, but once I was at the bottom of the staircase where I'd smelt the rotten meat smell and sulfur, she could smell the exact same perfume that her mother had always worn. And bringing these stories to her 
made her really tear up and think, oh, something actually was weird going on. And she swore that it was um, her mother. And there was talk of like smelling of flowers that she used to have and all sorts of things like that. So, you know, that was the, that house got demolished. We, we had to uh, move out of that house because the, the local government, the council bought it and they, they raised the ground. The, the, you know, they bulldozed the house and we had to move away. I moved into another property and I never had any issues in this property apart from like sleep paralysis issues, which was really strange. Um, but I started visiting a friend, the same friend um, who I had, had the cottage, whose dad, you know, owned in the old cottage with all the, the cigarette incident. He had, he was stopping in this house in a place called Bradford, which is in Yorkshire, uh, another northern county, a historical mill town, lots of old properties. And these properties were huge. They were like four-story properties with so many different rooms in them that students would rent them out while they were going to Bradford University. So I had a lot of friends that were stopping in this same property at that time, and I would visit them every weekend. I would go and stop with them. Uh, one weekend, they had a huge party. Um, people were in the basement, people were in all different levels of this house, all mingling around. But then the party emptied out. It got to like one in the morning. No one around. Everybody had gone who didn't live there. All the people had locked themselves away in the different bedrooms. You can imagine all these different rooms had been converted into individual bedrooms. So like what used to be the lounge or the living room would be a student's bedroom. And then you'd have a flight of stairs that'd go up and then the stairs would turn and go up another level and then you'd have another couple of rooms, two or three rooms that had been converted into student rooms. A third level similar and then finally on the top floor where my friend's room was it was the very top which was probably used to be the attic which was converted or something and my friend was sleeping in a room with a few others there wasn't enough room and I drew this short straw and they said to me look we're going to give you a sleeping bag you're going to have to sleep at the top of the, um, the stairs on this what they call the landing um, the area where there was a a bit of space before there was a bathroom and there was two doors. So the two doors were two bedrooms, there was a bathroom and I had this square little uh, area to just crash in. So I'd gone to sleep, I was quite happy there. And then three o'clock in the morning, I was awakened with the weirdest sound I've ever heard in my life. It was like somebody had done a montage and overlaid things. It was so weird. Imagine a crowd of people all chattering to each other all at once, male, female, all different age groups, all at the same time, like a cacophony of different people coming nearer up the stairs, like they were all ascending the stairs. But on top of that, there was a mechanical sound, which was like a whirring, like, and mixed with all the sound of chattering and conversation, all this kind of strange sound. And this just didn't sound right. I actually thought I was dreaming or just I didn't know what to think. So my, my gut instinct was I jumped out of the sleeping bag, 
ran down one flight of stairs, tried some people's doors, they were all locked, ran down another flight of stairs, looked around, nobody there. I thought, oh, maybe some people had come back in from the party that had left earlier. So I checked out every level of the property, no one there. Everybody fast asleep. The house was, you know, you, you, couldn't, you could hear a pin drop. Went back upstairs, thought, oh, maybe, maybe I was asleep. Maybe it was a dream. I'm going to put myself back in my sleeping bag and I'm going to go back to sleep. The moment I let down again, this whirring, humming, mechanical sound started happening again. All this chattering started up and it got louder and louder and it actually got to the point where it sounded like it was going to come up to my level and it sounded like there was literally going to be 30 people there all chattering. I got so afraid that I locked myself in the bathroom and slept in the bathtub all night. I just didn't know what to think. So in the morning, I kind of gathered myself, got up, and I started almost interviewing people from the different rooms. Has anything strange happened? I didn't want to tell them what had happened with me. I just wanted to be totally not influence anyone. So I said, has anything strange ever happened while you've been living here? Um, Two girls who shared a room said, yeah, um, we get strange things going on, like a poster's have been ripped off the wall one night. Um, Post has been moved from one wall to another. Uh, my stereo had moved. Uh, different people were telling me different stories like this from different rooms. Like one guy said he'd seen shadow people in the basement one night while they were having a, a hangout down there. And, it was, and the strange thing was, another one of my friends uh, went and slept in the exact same room a year later, um, which was just plain weird. I just thought, how, how, what are the odds of that? So I asked him if anything strange had gone on in this old property, and he said, yeah, similar stories. I never got to the bottom of what it was that I experienced. I hadn't got a clue. It sounded beyond a normal haunting to me. Something just, just got my hackles up, and I just thought, it was the first time I started thinking about like UFOs or alien encounters. And at that time, I was reading um, Whitley Strieber and the book Communion, which everybody kind of knows. And the the front cover of the book just freaked me out. Obviously, I'd seen the grey alien cover, you know, the, the same imagery over the years because I'd been into paranormal. It got me interested in the paranormal or my experiences. But something about that that book just freaked me out so badly. And I just went through a stage of utter paranoia, even in this new house that we were living in. I wanted to check all the closets all the time before I go to bed. I would have to sleep with lights on and things like that. And it wasn't until um, I left that house and went traveling. I finally got settled and didn't have this anxiety, but Going back to this house that we'd moved into, it was the, we, we finally got married, um, my wife and I, and we bought this house that was um, what they call a semi-detached house. It was a three-bedroom, and I had my first proper like UFO encounter, if you will, and something told me, something told me I, was, I knew it was going to happen. I was led 
on the couch looking out the window and I just had this urge to look into the distance. We, we were afforded a really beautiful view out of the uh, big bay window. I could see over what was called the Ribble Valley and we had these really huge hills in the distance that span the whole landscape and you could see in the horizon all you can see are these big hills and we have this famous hill called Pendle Hill where they used to have the famous witches of Pendle Hill and all these like folklore so we could see uh, on this view was kind of uh, uninterrupted if you will all the way to distance and something told me to look and look carefully into the distance over to these hills I just had this sixth sense and I kept watching and watching and all of a sudden in the distance what looked like when you, when you look into the distance and you see a balloon or something like that or a hot air balloon this thing was coming closer and closer and my gut feeling was getting stronger if you will it's almost like my spidey sense kicks in and I kept watching and watching and something urged me to go out around the side of the house and as this thing came over, it started to become evident that it wasn't a balloon. It looked physical. It looked like it had mechanical, almost markings or like it. It was metallic. It was barrel shaped. It was rotating on its axis very, very slowly. I ran to the side of the house, into the back garden, up some steps where I could get a better view. And it came so close that it must have been a hundred foot above the house. And this thing was barrel-like. And then I noticed it had four, three or four orbs. I'm not sure three or four orbs that were metallic looking, circling, orbiting. There was the main object, which was this barrel-like thing that you could see markings on and it looked metallic and it was uh, spinning on its axis. But these orbs around the outside were orbiting it, almost like they were magnetically attached and they, they were in a formation, all orbiting, all at the same distance apart from each other. I screamed to my wife to come out and look because I wanted her to check this out because I'd been talking about paranormal stuff to her for years and I'd had a big fascination in UFOs. So she came out around the side of the house absolutely in disbelief and she was saying wow what is that that is crazy it's some kind of technology it's it's physically it's and the moment she said that all the orbs separated all at once super fast shot off into the distance and then this object slowly very slowly in fact just carried on spinning and then just drifted off into the distance. Um, at that point, I was um, kicking myself not to go and get. I had a really good camera, a Canon an XLR camera, and I just wished I'd have gone and took some snaps. I didn't have any video equipment at that time. Mobile phones um, were still in the old Nokia stage. They didn't have decent video on or anything like that. But I had the corroboration of another witness, and it just blew my mind. Um, at that point, I, I realised that, you know, it wasn't just things I've read about, that something strange is out there and something that 
you know, could it have been military technology? Yes, I suppose so. We had a local um, aerospace company at a place called Salmsbury, and it's um, called BAE, BAE Systems, British Aerospace something else um, systems and they're known for doing like projects maybe they do like secret projects and stealth craft who knows but this this kind of um, was one of the go-to things that I thought of could it have been some experimental craft who knows but like with these orbs you know I'd heard all the stories over the years I've been a UFO researcher for years I'd heard the stories of um, orbiting like orbs and things like that around I've seen, seen the videos ever since. The strange thing is, many years later on YouTube, I saw a, a person posted um, a sighting of what looked like um, there was a kid playing in the backyard and this object had come down. It almost like came down and it was almost like interested in this kid like looking at playing in his backyard. And this it looked very similar, this object, to what I'd seen. And then, I'd seen some other clips over the years, like some things filmed in Nevada and some strange things, and they all look very similar to me. Um, and then I started researching things like this Black Knight satellite. I don't know if, if you've ever heard of that. Yeah, I've heard of it. I, I don't know a ton about it, but I've heard a lot about it. It's just, it's one of those things where there's so much uh, speculation about it. I'm not sure what details to go with. And yeah, so I started researching the Black Knight and, the, the the vague kind of imagery that I could see of it, it looked very similar to what I'd seen in, in other words. It was the technology didn't look like it was man-made, it just looked too abstract and too strange and all the markings on it. And it just looked like nothing a you know, a person couldn't be on board this thing the way it was operating. It was just too abstract. And my gut feeling was it was some kind of probe or you know this was bef years before drones existed uh, but it just looked like something like that very very strange and this reminded me of another incident that I'd forgotten about that the same cottage that with the cigarette incident with it lighting upon its own when his father was renovating that property he had scaffolding on the outside of the house which was leading to the, the rooftop so me and my friend and another friend would spend all summer just sat on top of this rooftop, just staring at this same valley that I was talking about before that this other property looked out onto. And for some reason, we all had this fascination with this valley we, and these hills in the distance. We just watched and watched. When it was night, we'd just stare up at the stars and look for satellites coming past. One summer's day, we were all staring just for some reason. I don't know, we were just talking to each other having, uh, you know, telling some jokes. And we're all looking in the same place. And there's this grassy hill in the distance, this huge hill. And we all noticed at the same time a metal disc slowly ascend just above hill level, just enough so that you could see the top of the disc to, to realise that it was a dome-shaped disc, traditional classic metal UFO-looking thing. And... This hill was so far in the distance, this thing must have been huge. And as soon as we'd noticed it, it very slowly descended below the um, the hill, the line of the hill. So it was not visible anymore. And we looked at each other and said, did you see that? 
yeah, yeah, I saw that, my friend said. It, it just slowly came up, and as soon as it had come up, it went back down again. And, yeah, there were the only two major UFO incidents where, you know, both had corroboration and eyewitnesses. And after that, I didn't have any other um, paranormal experiences per se, but I had a lot of weird sleep paralysis, waking up in the middle of the night, jumping up, bolt upright, talking in my sleep, um, things like that. My wife would be really freaked out. She'd be waking up saying, what's going on? What the hell are you doing? You know, you you just sat up upright in bed for no reason and you were just talking to somebody and you're really scaring me, like, what's going on? And I'd have these strange nights where I'd wake up and in the peripheral vision I'd see shapes coming down from the ceiling. It looked like almost mechanical spider contraptions, if you were, like coming down from the ceiling above. And I'd just put it down to, oh, you know, I was having some kind of weird nightmares and stuff like that. Um, but this carried on. We went traveling around the world. We went to Australia. Um, and I had a very strange event in Australia. We, we were touring up and down the coast of Australia. And we stopped at a place called Surfer's Paradise. And we rented a, an apartment for the night. And it was just like a, a traditional block of apartments, you know, nothing special, just run of the mill. And it had a, a really nice big living room, it had a kitchen, a bedroom, but it had this bathroom that I just got a really weird feeling about. As soon as I walked into the property, something drew me to the bathroom. And I went to go for the door, and the door was locked from the inside. And I couldn't figure this out. This was, like, freaky. So I tried a few times, and my wife was saying, oh, just leave it, you know. We've got another bathroom uh, attached to the bedroom. It's fine. Something was setting all the heckles on my arms off and making me really freaked out. Something about this bathroom, I was so uneasy. I couldn't sleep. I was up in the middle of the night. It was like something odd had happened in that bathroom. I just had this sixth sense. The next day, in the morning, I went to the same bathroom and the door opened. Absolutely no problem. Went in. And I just felt cold, like something's happened in this room, like something really odd. And um, I, I couldn't put my finger on it, couldn't figure out what was the deal with that. Just another weird incident in the catalogue of strange occurrences over my life. Um, you know, and then I think the final incident I had, I've, I've been good for like years, like no, I'd say 10 years I've had no experiences thank goodness, you know. Um, but we moved to Spain after traveling around the world for a while and touring Australia. We, we moved to Spain for a few years where I, I worked as a designer. We set up our own small design business in Spain and we lived in this one apartment and I started seeing out the corner of my eye. We were sat watching TV and I looked to my right and I could see what looked like movement in the hallway where the, um, there was a doorway and it led to a big hallway. And the bedroom was on one side of the hallway and then the kitchen door was on the other. And it looked like somebody was walking from bedroom through the hallway through into the kitchen. 
And I started noticing more and more. I just put it down to, oh, nothing. I was imagining things. And then again, I could see shadows in the corner of my eye. And then I started to look more in more detail, and I could see actual physical black shadowy figures walking from one side to the other into the kitchen. And I said to my wife, did you see that? Did you see that? And she said, no, no, I didn't see anything. And this kept happening all the time, like every other night there. And then we were renting this place and they had to move us. The, the, the tenant, we were tenants in this place. The landlord kicked us out and we went into another property. And subsequently after that, I felt really comfortable in this other property and no more experiences. And that was the last time I had any of these strange experiences, really. Um, but when I do look back, it's such a catalogue of weird things. And whether there's a connection between them all, whether, I don't know, I, I have no idea. I just know that there's some mind-bending stuff and some things that I can't explain to these this day. And some of the things of the, the cigarette thing story, when I tell people, they look at me like I've got two heads. Like, what are you talking about? That's just insane. Uh, I don't even believe it to this day. It was so bizarre. And, but, yeah, very, very odd. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you've had tons of experiences throughout your life. And, you know, when we first started this interview, I was thinking, you know, maybe we could lend a, a hand as to, you know, somebody who is listening to the stories and, you know, outside perspective as to maybe how this kind of all unfolded for you throughout your life. But the more I heard it, I was like, this is just a jam-packed life filled with experiences and some of <clears throat> excuse me and some of it maybe you know was brought on in the sense of the investigations and the scream kind of thing but uh, some of it is just very sheer happenstance do you have any inkling as to why you had so many experiences at one point in your life but now it seems like it died off yeah um, a couple of things I think going through the trauma of losing a mother at an early age, at 13, 14. And then I surrounded myself with a lot of friends to deal with it, and I didn't come to terms with it for quite a few years. I just dealt with it by, you know, doing the things I loved, like music and skateboarding and things like that. And I had a huge, wide circle of friends. And when I my father moved to this little small mill town in this awful property with no sunlight and it was I was so depressed I'd lost contact with all my friends I didn't have transport at that time so uh, I was seeing I used to see my friends every night I was isolated um, he was away obviously truck driving for a couple of nights of the week um, I'd started working in a job that I was very unhappy with in this kind of small print place um, my only escaping life was seeing my girlfriend at that time um you know I've, I've known my girlfriend since college and we, we've been married years and she was the only kind of anchor I had and so I when she came around it was like a, a breath of fresh air I got to escape this miserable life if you will and you know when when you, you hear stories don't you of like people going through trauma or especially like poltergeist you hear of young girls going through puberty or difficult times in the life and then these events happen what always springs to my mind is going through such emotion such turmoil 
that it might have triggered or made me more sensitive to things perhaps or you know perhaps there, there was some kind of haunting there that was related to that I, I don't claim to know and then going forward later in life like why it hasn't happened now is because possibly because um well a couple of things i'm content um i'm happy I've, i don't ever think about things like that i've got my routines in life i'm not so you know um in a bad place as i was if you will and the other thing is i found um my religion again, like I, I got brought up at a, a school, which was a Catholic school. I, I wasn't Catholic myself, but I was very close to the church. You know, I was very close to, I used to go to um, the Sunday services and I used to um, love all everything about, I used to be envious of the kids that had the rosary beads even and want to do communion um, and always wish that I could be involved in that. And I think throughout the time when I needed that the most, I've become most detached from from faith, if you will, uh, with a lot of dark things happening in my life. And then I think as I've grown older, I've found my faith again and um, learned to sort of almost talk to God as a child would again and just have that unwavering belief that there's something there and that's given me great comfort and I think you know could that be a connection possibly the fact that I surround myself with with that now um I don't know I mean that's for everybody else to decide really but it certainly could be a factor I'd like to think so I'd like to think that you know we have divine protection from scary and crazy things in life. If uh... Yeah, I kind of understand what you're saying, man. Uh, you know, I think a lot of times perspectives come from life experiences. And uh, though it's a perspective, I think that with your situation and many other people's situations with the paranormal, uh, the life experiences uh, that we see around us also contribute to the paranormal type experiences that we have. Uh, and it's all through, I'm having a hard time saying what I'm trying to think of here, but it's all through your perspective. So you're, you're, you have these experiences happening to you, but your perspective as to what happened in your life, attributing to that is the only definition we can run with. Does that make sense at all? I mean, uh, oh, totally, yeah. It, it, it's just, um, I, I, I put a lot of weight and value in people's perspectives when it comes to how they view their experiences and also why they went through those experiences. Uh, because you know who you are, you know uh, why um, you think a certain way. And I do think that you as who you are, why you think a certain way and what you believe do contribute to how you define your paranormal experiences, but also contribute to why they even happened. And uh, I think that you might be onto something there. Yeah. Um Totally. Um, one other strange, totally unrelated story springs to mind. It's actually from my wife. This this is totally like on a tangent, but do you remember the time when Princess Diana died? Yeah, was it 97? Um, yeah, so uh, we went out for a meal. Um, it was a week before that happened, and we were just eating, and my wife looks at me and she says, Princess Diana is going to be killed. 
And I looked at her and I said, what? And she said, it was almost like automatic thing coming out of her mouth. She just said it for no reason. I said, what on earth do you mean? She said, it just seems so obvious. She's going to die very soon. Just the way things are going. And then she didn't even know why she said it. And then a week later, in the house where, where we had the incident with all the Star Wars figures popping off the shelf that we'd just moved into when, when we were quite young, she came running into the bedroom early in the morning and said, white as a sheet, and she said, I can't believe it. She's died. She's died, just like I said. And that is just another kind of strange story that I've just remembered now, and um, which adds another aspect to it, you know, not UFO, not paranormal haunting, but like how people could do such a thing and come out with such a weird thing. Uh, and I've had incidents like that myself. Um, I used to visit my grandmother um, in what she had this like shed over 55's accommodation and I was walking around the outside of the property past the garden, past her neighbour's house and I had a voice in my head saying um, Mrs whatever she was called, Mrs uh, Robinson's died and she opened the um, the door and said Mrs Robinson's died and it was like I literally just thought of it two minutes before she just told me and I, I really believe that we have um, an ability to tap into things that maybe the human race has lost perhaps over the years and maybe people get lucky enough to just tap into these things. Who knows? But these things have happened. I can't explain them, uh, but very, very strange. Yeah, well, definitely strange. And I think and I think I said this to you before we even started interviewing. Um, you know, I, I haven't experienced half the things you guys have experienced on the show. I mean, I've had certain things here and there happen to me, but nothing on a level of what you like what you just described, where uh, you went through many different experiences, not just paranormal, not just with uh, one particular, quote unquote, type of entity, but just really peppered throughout your life. And I, I've never experienced stuff like that. And I'm always fascinated by it. And now you're telling me about your wife and basically predicting Princess Diana's death. Uh, I find that very fascinating. It's like, sometimes I wonder if there's something, I, I don't, I feel goofy saying it like this, but it makes me wonder sometimes if there's some type of engineered life around us, uh, a matrix. And yeah. It's like, did your wife just an ex experience a glitch in the matrix where she felt, at least felt, because she probably would have said if she saw something, but she at least felt what she was going to feel in a week, a week early. It's weird. Yeah, it lends to the, the thought that everything's happening all at once and all that kind of um, idea. And whether every now and again we, we slip out of the perception of how we perceive time and just maybe get a glimpse of things accidentally, who knows? Um, you know, but there's certainly, there's, there's enough evidence to suggest that a lot of people have been through these kind of similar experiences and things are, are not quite as we seem, as they seem. And yeah, who knows? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't pretend to know. Uh, I'm just the guy that hosts conversations and yeah. enjoys hearing stories. Uh, but 
I'll tell you what, man, I do appreciate you coming on the show and sharing these experiences. I, I find them interesting, man. Uh, it uh, Sometimes people just have stories that are sprinkled throughout their life and and you're one of those guys. And uh, the fact that they're, they're not, or that the fact that they are seemingly done now and the way you view why they're done, I find comfort in that. Person, personally for me, I look at your life and I find comfort in that and I hope you do too. Yeah, definitely. And to be honest, I'd never even thought of half of these um, experiences until I thought about coming on the show. And then I started making notes and then that gave way to other um, experiences coming up from um, the subconscious that I totally forgot about. And that was... Um, cathartic in itself just being able to offload all these experiences and just recount them to somebody because instead of carrying them around and um you know it's 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 good to be able to tell them to an audience that into this kind of stuff and that you know doesn't just look at you and think oh you must be crazy you know what are you talking about and it's subsequently it's got me absolutely fascinated in anything paranormal hauntings or you name it, conspiracies. I, I research everything these days. Um, and I'm probably just as fascinated as most of the audience is. Well, that's the show, everybody. I really hope you enjoyed it. And if you did enjoy it, please share the show with your friends. I don't care where you share it or how you share it. Just share the show with your friends if you enjoyed it, because that's the best thing you can do to help the show grow. And if you can, go ahead to the website, theconfessionalspodcast.com, hit the store page and check out all the cool stuff we offer merchandise-wise. We have beard oils, custom wood-making stuff with the Confessionals logo, and of course, t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, all that fun stuff on theconfessionalspodcast.com. And until next week, friends, stay safe, take care. And I really do mean that. Stay safe. My Lord, take care for real. And remember, the truth will set you free, but first it'll piss you off. Bye.
girls and we don't punch a clock. Gotta go, gotta go, see you later by the cat. And you can't beat that with a bat. You can oh. do with this, or you can do with that. You can oh. do with this, or you can do with that. You can oh. do with this, or you can do with that. I think you oh. Later. You can get with this, 